very much. I've got this. I hope it's working. Thank you. Right. Well, thank you very much. Good afternoon. I've come to talk to you about sustainability. Isn't that exciting? Well, I think so. Actually, it's very, very important. It's important for you. And it's very important for you. It's important for you as well. In fact, it's important for all of us. Okay, so what is sustainability? Sustain. Sustain means support. It means hold on to. It means maintain. It means conserve. It means retain. Am I getting anywhere? Well, let's look at it from this point of view. What about your standard of living? I apologise for the photograph. I googled standard of living. They haven't got any photographs of it, but I like that one. Your standard of living. You live in a house. A lot of people in the world don't. It's dry, it's warm, you have television, no doubt a games console, you have food, you have clothes to wear, you have, um, you probably go on foreign holidays and you have loving parents who will drive you around in a really nice car. So you've got a really good standard of living. But in the next five to ten years, how many of you would like something better? None of you? Oh, somebody at the back would. Well, anyway, just assuming that all you want to do is to hold on. You don't want something better. You just want to hold on to what you've already got. There is a problem. Actually, there's 7,000 million or 7 billion problems. That's because there are 7,000 million, 7 billion people in the world and they all, well, most of them, want everything that you've got. The other ones want more than you've got, like the Australians and the Americans, because they've already got a higher standard of living and they want to hold on to that. The population problem is quite serious, because in 1950, we had two and a half billion people in the world. Ah, it does work. And now, we have 30, uh, 7 billion in 2013. Now there's good news and there's bad news. The good news is the United Nations says that this rate of growth will stop. The bad news is that it won't stop till 2050 and we will have got to 9 billion by then. And let's show you how. Can I ask you to show us the website? Well, it... right. It's a very interesting website which you'll see in just a minute. Um, here we go. That's right. That's the world population. I lied when I said it was 7 billion because you can see it is 7 billion, 183 million, 7,819, 20, 21. The world population in real time is growing by three people per second. Today it has already grown by 127,000. This year it's already grown by 61 million, which is about the size of the total population of the United Kingdom. And it's going on and on and on. Now, this is going to lead, I think, to a few stresses, strains and problems. Can we go back to the presentation, please? Right. And on. Ah, right. I put that up there just in case we couldn't get the website. You can see, in fact, that uh, China and India are by far the biggest. Between them, they account for 30% of the world's population. And the USA is way behind. It's the next biggest, but it's only got 320 million, whereas the other two have each got well over a billion. That's a lot of people. That's an awful lot of people. 
If we go to 9 billion by 2050, that's about 30% more than we've got now. So we're going to need 30% more food and water and energy and resources, and we'll have to deal with 30% more waste. Except that, that will only keep us at the status quo. That will keep us with the standards of living which we enjoy now. All over the world. But there are an awful lot of people who want an awful lot better. Have we heard of the BRIC nations? No. Well, the BRIC nations are Brazil and Russia and India and China. And they are all growing rapidly in terms of population, except for Russia, which is actually declining. But in terms of economy, their economies, and you all heard about the Chinese economy and the rate at which it's growing, may be about to slow down, but that's another issue. They are growing rapidly. And not only are they growing rapidly, but the people within those nations are believing that they deserve the standard of living that we have here in the West. And so therefore, increasingly, they want to eat meat, because largely they're vegetarian at the moment. Increasingly, they want to drive cars. They want to have uh, air conditioning. They want to have all the sorts of things that we want. And therefore, the 30% increase in line with the level of population won't be enough to provide all that. And the pressures will come on all of us, because we are in a global market. And as demand goes up from these developing nations, we are going to have to find our own way to be able to afford all these different things. I was going to make a point there, but I've forgotten it. But I'll come back to it later. The big question is, of course, first of all, will there be enough food? Cereals are one thing. We all need wheat for bread and so on. But are we going to have to become vegetarian? The answer is probably not. But if you want to continue to eat meat, we're going to find that it's going to be scarcer and it's going to be more expensive. Simply because more and more people from other parts of the world are demanding a Western-style diet. It's quite ironic, as I was driving here this afternoon, I was listening to a programme on the radio, and they said, we are in line for a shortage of chocolate. And they said specifically, it's because the middle classes in India and China are demanding chocolate, and there's a finite supply, and watch out for the prices to go up. So if you like your Kit Kat and your Yorkie bar, you may well have to pay more for them before too long. The other question is, is there enough water? Well, you look out the window today and say, it's far too much. And in fact, if you looked at last year's summer, which wasn't really a summer, it rained all the time, didn't it? So why should water be a problem? Well, maybe not in the UK. Maybe in the UK, as we'll see in a minute. This is the Aral Sea. It is unique in being a sea without any water. This, in fact, is a man-made environmental disaster. What happened was the Soviets decided it was a good idea to grow cotton, and if you want to grow cotton, you need lots of water, so they diverted a river... And that was the river that filled the Aral Sea. And once they diverted it, the Aral Sea dried up. I'm not quite sure how successful they were at growing cotton, but I do know that the fishing industry in the Aral Sea collapsed. This is the Colorado River, one of the biggest ones in the United States. And it goes, as you can see, from Wyoming through Utah, Colorado, Arizona, California, all the way down to the sea. Except it doesn't. Out of three of the last five years, it hasn't got as far as the sea. That is because, on the, on the way along, people have taken water out for industry, they've taken water out for drinking, they've taken water out for agriculture, and by the time it gets to the coast, it doesn't go to the coast. 
it's run out. Now that's in the United States, that's within a country. But what happens when you've got a big river that lots of people rely on, which goes through lots of different countries, like the Rhine or the Danube, or um, the River Jordan in, uh, in the Middle East, and other rivers in Africa, we are beginning to see the start of conflicts of water wars, because water is a scarce resource, and people near the headwaters are taking it out, and the people below are suffering from drought, which means they haven't got enough to drink, which means that they cannot support their agriculture, and industry comes in poor third. And this, as you will recognise, is Trafalgar Square in London, with a fountain. London sits on an artesian well, which is a geographical formation, which means that if you drill a hole in the right place, you don't have to pump the water out, it just shoots out. Fascinating. Except it doesn't anymore. It used to shoot out and it used to feed these fountains, but now it has to be mechanically pumped. That's because we've taken so much water out that we've lowered the pressure. In fact, in London and the southeast, they're taking out more water than is actually coming in from the rain. They have a serious problem in London and the southeast. They have a shortage of water. The aquifer underneath London, from which they've been taking water, is now beginning to fill up from below with salt water. And when that rises to the top, that is the end of it. So there are a lot of serious problems, for the future at least, in the UK, as far as water is concerned. But then what about resources, like metals and timbers and minerals and things like that? Well, we dig them out of the ground, don't we? This is the Kalgoorlie Super Pit, which is a gold mine in Western Australia. It's big, because if you look, those little yellowy things near the bottom, they're trucks, and they can carry 50 tonnes at a time, so they're quite big. So if you put that in proportion, that's very big. That's only one mine, that's a gold mine. But there are coal mines, and increasingly open casts like that, so they just dig it out of the ground. They don't make a pit and go down in a cage or anything like that. In America, they are digging out whole mountains, and they are shipping off the coal all around the world, principally to China, and they're doing the same with iron ore, which is fine as long as it lasts, apart from the pollution issues, which I'll come across in a minute. In nature, we get plants. Plants grow, and eventually they die. Nature recycles. Because when that plant dies, it rots. It rots down, it becomes food for all sorts of bugs and organisms and things like that. And it eventually becomes compost, and you can grow more plants out of it, and you can also uh, feed more animals on it. And so nature is almost a closed circle. There's very, very little waste. It all gets reused. Compare that with man, we put it in a hole in the ground. Oh, you'll say, we do recycling. Well, yes, but we'll come to that in a minute. What we're doing, to a very large extent, is we're either digging things up or we're growing them, and we're manufacturing them into things, and after a very short time, we're chucking them into a hole in the ground. We're taking them from nature, we're transforming them into a form which neither we nor nature can ever use again, and chucking them into a hole in the ground. Not only are we running out of materials to dig out of the ground, we're also running out of holes in the ground. So yes, we've got to look at recycling, amongst other things, to draw, to deal with that. I've just remembered two interesting things about food, which I should have covered earlier on. 
One is that two billion people in the world regularly eat insects, and grasshoppers and grubs and flies and things like that. Two billion. That's a very high proportion. And of course, it's a very efficient way of delivering nutrition. So how do you fancy a bug burger? Well, nobody likes them, do they? But it's a cultural thing. In the future, as that population climbs to one, towards nine billion, maybe even we will have to rely on things like that. And the second thing is, what about GM foods? The general attitude of GM foods is, oh, we don't want GM foods. Why don't we want GM foods? Well, well, they're not natural. Okay, there are a lot of issues that have got to be addressed as far as GM foods are concerned. In some places in the developing world, 80% of crops can be devastated by insects. Now, if you can genetically modify a plant so its sap is poisonous to insects, so those insects are killed and the plant grows, and there is a big yield, and people can feed themselves instead of starving, isn't it morally right that we should allow that to happen? Of course. We've got to check out what sort of side effects there may be from other aspects of these GM plants. But it's not clear-cut. It's something we've really got to work on and think about. Anyway, coming back to man discarding, what's next? Next thing is energy. We live in an energy-dependent society. Mainly on, well, not mainly, but we do rely very much on electricity, which is not a fuel in itself. It's a means of transporting energy. The main things that we use uh, in this country and probably in most developed economies are coal, gas, and oil. Oil mainly for transport, coal mainly for generating electricity, gas for industry, for heating homes, and for generating electricity. Yes, we have some renewables. It's growing, but it's still a small proportion. The potential is there. As I've said, we use a lot of coal. By the way, where do we get our coal from? Anybody, any idea where we get our coal from? Nobody, any idea where we get our coal from? Uh, quite a lot of it comes from Russia. And nuclear, well, nuclear is a bit of a problem at the moment because a lot of our nuclear plants are very old and they're being shut down because they're very old because governments have shuffled their feet and not done anything about replacing them. We are starting to build new nuclear plants, but it's going to be probably at least 10 years before the next nuclear plants start generating. And they're not really a long-term solution because they say that there's only about 100 years' worth of uranium left. And we all know about the, not the, well, the potential pollution problems, the, the, the close-down, um, the decommissioning of the plants is incredibly expensive and it takes an awful long time. Although, you may not believe this, but nuclear is in fact the safest form of electricity generation, statistically anyway. Gas. Where does our gas come from? Anybody got any idea where our gas comes from? No. Oh, sorry, was the hand at the back? Yes, where does our gas come from? Sorry? France. France. Well, not directly. It's come, some comes from Holland. Most of it comes from the North Sea. And part of it is, is the British sector of the North Sea, and part of it is the Norwegian sector of the North Sea. Most people say it all comes from Russia, which it doesn't, but it might in due course, because when it runs out in Norway, Russia has got an awful lot more. But we get 20% of our gas in tankers like this. 
at this moment there are tankers on the high seas bringing gas to this country. That's 20%. And that comes from Qatar. Qatar is in the Persian Gulf. So they have to come south all the way down to the Horn of Africa and round and back up and across the Bay of Biscay and into a port in South Wales and they plug it into the gas main and they fill up our pipes. 20%. There are three things that we have to be concerned about as far as energy is concerned. One is whether it pollutes, secondly whether we can afford it and thirdly whether it's secure. And if we're relying on 20% of our gas from somewhere in the Middle East, which is not the most stable region politically, I don't think it ticks the security box. Gas is cleaner than coal, so it gets a sort of a half mark on the pollution side, and the price is in the lap of the gods, to be perfectly honest. But I can assure you that energy prices, despite what Ed Miliband says, will go up. Oh, and there's fracking. You've all heard about fracking. There's been all this fuss about fracking. What's fracking? Well, fracking is driving a water under extreme pressure right down into the depths of the earth where there are layers of shale. Shale is an oil-bearing or oily rock which is laid in layers and the water splits these layers apart. The water usually has sand in it. The sand keeps the layers apart. And then oil, but more usually gas, can leak out and come back up the pipe to the, um, well, the distribution truck or in, straight into the gas grid. And there's a lot of fuss about that at the moment, isn't there? George Osborne has said he's going to give it really amazing uh, subsidies because this is, the, this is the fuel of the future. My opinion is that it's a little bit dangerous to put all your eggs in one basket because although America has seen a revolution from fracking, has generated a vast amount of oil and very cheap gas by fracking all over the place, there is no guarantee that the geology in this country is the same and that it will work just as well. There is no real clear uh, indication of what it's going to cost and it won't be ready anytime soon. They won't be producing it uh, commercially for possibly five to ten years. So we've got a lot of questions over our energy. Oh, and then there's climate change. Climate change doesn't seem to be very popular recently. Of course, a lot of people think global warming. Well, yes, and Scarborough's never looked so good. But it isn't just that. Climate change is more climate destabilization. So we're seeing, well, this actually came out last Friday. And the IPCC, in this case, is not the um, Independent Police Complaints Commission. It's the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. Their fifth report came out last Friday. They've been studying the climate. Thousands of scientists have produced this report. They've been studying it since 1990. And they came to the conclusion, I mean, it's thousands of pages, but I thought this was the most interesting bit, human influence on the climate system is clear. We are causing global warming. We are causing global warming by causing greenhouse gases to be emitted, amongst other things. They said the scientific consensus is 95% certain, and that's about as certain as you can get as far as a scientific conclusion is concerned. Climate change leads to uncontrolled forest fires. They had serious fires last year in the United States. They had them in Australia. And, of course, that threatens not only people and their houses, it threatens crops as well. And the other side of it, of course, is if you destabilise the climate, in some cases... <coughs> Excuse me, you get floods. This is York last year. 
It wasn't a particularly serious flood. It wasn't record-breaking. It was very serious for the people who were affected. And the unusual thing was it happened three times last year. But if we warm the planet, what happens? Amongst other things, we melt the polar ice caps. And what happens? The sea levels rise. We also warm the seas because the global warming, a, a large proportion of the global warming, is actually going into the oceans. Because the oceans, of course, account for the majority of the Earth's surface. And warm water expands. Sea levels rise. And while it may only be a few centimetres per year, the point is that the increased volume on the surface means that when you have a storm surge, there's that many more thousands of tonnes of water to be driven up the rivers and onto the shores and to flood those people and installations close to the sea. Like the Fukushima nuclear plant like almost every big city in the world, because every big city in the world was built either on a river or on the sea, because at the time they were built, trade went by water. So, you might be saying after this, oh, isn't this really depressing? What can I do? It's not depressing, it's a challenge. Every generation has its challenges. Next year, you will learn about the challenge of your contemporaries 100 years ago, the ones who went to the trenches in the First World War. They had a challenge. Yes, you've got a challenge, but perhaps not quite as extreme as that. And there are a number of positive things we can do. The first thing is to be a good citizen. Oh, my animation doesn't work. That's a big green tick, by the way. And that really means reduce, reuse, recycle. You've heard that before. Reduce. It's the most important. That's why it's in the biggest type. Reduce. Don't buy things you don't want. Don't buy things you don't need. Don't buy things that won't last. Save your money. Buy something better. Buy quality. Then it can be reused. If you don't buy these things that aren't really essential, then people don't have to dig up the raw materials or grow plants in order to provide the raw materials. They don't have to use energy to manufacture them or to deliver them to your shops. So reducing makes the biggest impact in terms of, well, if you like, a negative impact in terms of preserving the planet, preserving the environment. And reusing means that you defer the need for people to manufacture replacement products. So again, you've got another win. And recycle? Well, that's down the bottom there in tiny, tiny print. Why? Recycling is really a last resort. Recycling is the last stop on the way to the hole in the ground. And it's much better to recycle than to put things into a hole in the ground. But recycling itself is not a panacea, certainly not in this country. There are people who would like to see everything recycled in the way that nature recycles it, so that we can actually go back to where we started. But if you put a bottle into the bottle bank, it doesn't come back as a bottle, it probably comes back as um, glass uh, insulation mat or something. If you put your newspapers into the newspaper bank, it doesn't come back as a newspaper, it's more likely to come back as cardboard or packaging. And so therefore we're downcycling rather than recycling. And there is scope, of course, to improve that. But we're not doing yet as much as we could. So that's number one, be a good citizen. And everybody can do that and everybody should. Number two, get the knowledge. Understand about these issues because they're all going to affect every one of you. If energy prices are going to go up, then when you come to buy a car, which won't be that far ahead, it makes sense to get something that's economical. It makes sense to insulate your house. 
All these issues will give you ideas and they will help you be forewarned, be forearmed. I want to tell you about envirocrew.org, which is an initiative which I'm launching and it's designed to inform people of your age group about all these issues. That is a website which will be launched in the course of next week. And we also have a series of webinars, which will be recorded if you can't listen to them on time. And we are going to talk about the issues. We're going to talk about food, we're going to talk about water, about materials, about climate change, about energy. And behind that, we're going to have a learning management system so that there are assignments, so there's a wiki, there's a glossary. There's an opportunity, too, for you to take part in contests for which there'll be val valuable prizes, although I don't know what they are going to be yet. We will ask you to do a short essay or to take a photograph or perhaps video something on your smartphone and submit that. This is the crew. That's Caleb, that's Will, that's Diedrich, and that's Serena. They're all University of York students, and they're working with me to create this service which is aimed at providing information to you. And the information is for you to take and to make up your own mind about. And once you've done that, you should spread the word. You should spread the word because there's a lot of disinformation out there. There's a lot of people who want things to go on as they are. They want us to go on burning coal and using oil and things like that. A lot of people who've got financial and vested interests and they don't want to risk their investments or lose their money by changing. So you hear them in the press. They're rubbishing every report about climate change and so on being man-made. But just remember one thing. Most of those people have got short-term interests. They won't be around in 2050. You will. They won't be around in 2100. Many of you will these days because of lifespans are increasing. So take what you hear from anybody with a large pinch of salt. Spread the word. Write to the paper. Write a blog. Write about it on the Facebook. Maybe you feel that you should join something like Greenpeace or Friends of the Earth. Maybe you even feel, and it's up to you to do your own research and make up your own minds, maybe you want to go and do direct action and perhaps, well, I was going to say close down a power station. Don't do that, but you know what I mean. You may be committed to, to doing something like that. Or you could write to your MP. Whoa. Well, you could write to your MP. I tell you, if you write to your MP, I guarantee that he will write back. Do you know who your MP is? Oh dear, well I hope he knows who you are. Your MP, oh I've got to point it that way, is Andrew Jones. He's a Conservative. That's surprising for Harrogate, isn't it? Andrew Jones will write back to you because there's an election in 2015 and most of you will be able to vote. And he knows that there will be at least a thousand people in this area like you who will be voting for the first time. Now, if you don't know that Andrew Jones is your MP, you probably won't know that his majority is 1,037. So you, as a group of new voters, can have, play a significant part uh, in, in whether he gets returned to Parliament or not. So he's going to reply to your letter, whatever you write to him about. And finally, make a job of it. You're moving towards probably university, higher education, and ultimately to a career. What are you going to do? Whatever you do, it's going to be affected by sustainability issues. 
it's going to be affected by all the things that I've spoken about. So, for example, you might decide to be a scientist, because we need scientists. We need scientists and engineers to build the wind farms, the solar arrays, to deal with the nuclear waste. We need people who can design products, design products which will use the minimal amount of material in the most efficient way, which will keep the costs down, and which will mean that they can be recycled easily. We need people who can do that. We need people who can be environmental assessors so that when somebody comes and wants to build a new shopping centre, a motorway or a housing estate, we can be sure that we take full account of the impact on the environment. You might want to be an accountant or a lawyer. Accountants in large firms are now legally obliged not just to count money but also to count carbon. And as far as the legal profession is concerned, there's a whole area, a whole specialism opening up because wind farms and nuclear power stations and all the other big infrastructure projects need licenses and planning permission and regulations and, and, and so on and so on. And then there are environmental regulations and unfortunately there are still people who are breaking those regulations so we need lawyers to help enforce them. Or maybe you want to be a journalist. That doesn't look like a journalist. No, but if you decide to go into the medical profession, climate change, people say, may bring malaria further north. We may start seeing malaria from the malarial mosquitoes in our country relatively soon, and possibly other diseases and things like that. So it'll affect you if you want to go into the medical profession. Or you could be a journalist, because all these people doing all these things need to be monitored, need to be reported on, so that we know whether people are doing things that they ought to do so that we can blow the whistle on governments, on companies, on anybody else that's not actually towing the sustainability line. But maybe you want to be a teacher, maybe you want to be an MP, maybe you want to represent your few views at the local council, in Parliament, at the EU, at the United Nations. There's a million people in your age group in the United Kingdom. Some of those people are going to do that sort of thing. Undoubtedly, some of those are sitting in this room. So, make a job of it. My message to you is that I strongly believe that sustainability works. Yes, there are challenges. But sustainability is the future. It's our future. And you are on the point of becoming the managers, the leaders, and the thought leaders and taking responsibility for taking our civilization forward. Our future is in your hands. Don't let us down. Your future is in your hands. Don't let yourselves down. Your children's future, I know you might smile, but in five to ten years, many of you will have children, sooner if you're careless. Your children's future is in your hands. Don't let them down. So in conclusion, sustainability works. You're part of the solution. That's the future.